Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. This is Mind Heist episode 38 with myself, Amin, and Akhi Tweet. Today we have a guest, we're mixing it up, uh, a guest other than, of course, uh, Akhi Tweet's wife. So, uh, yeah, Muhammad, welcome to Mind Heist. How's it going? Assalamu alaikum, guys. How's it going? How's uh, it's the first of Ramadan? How are you feeling? Alhamdulillah, I feel like I made it finally, you know, like I said, when I get to Ramadan, when I get close to it, I start fearing that I'm going to die out of Ramadan, so I'm really, really happy to, alhamdulillah, get here. Alhamdulillah, and uh, so uh, how I know you, of course, is like we work together uh, in our business, and uh, that's our main connection, I suppose, but did you know, um, tweet that, you know, so you're connected to Muhammad through me. But you're also connected to Muhammad through Vafa, like indirectly. So, did many connections oh. there. And it's a small world after all. <laughs> yeah. I guess if you if you live in if you live in Brighton, then you're gonna know Vafa, right? Of course, bro. Mashallah, <laughs> way back. <laughs> so, Muhammad, to to kind of jump into it, I've got a question for you because I know you got you're Pakistani, but you got a link to to North Africa, yeah. And this is like a North African podcast. So okay, I'm, okay. I'm putting you yeah. on the on the spot here. What what food do you like from Morocco? Oh man, I, I like all food. First of all, that, that's <laughs> the first thing. I like all food. Um, but from from Morocco, you know, it's very interesting because when I went to Morocco, uh, my wife's half Moroccan, half French. So when I went to Morocco, uh, I got to go to lots of different cities. I got to go to like uh, fairs and Casablanca, Marrakesh, and stuff. And uh, my wife's actually from this place called Taza, which is like uh, very close to Fez. And I went there, and um, it was my auntie, my my wife's uh, auntie, basically. She cooked us this amazing uh, dish which was uh, basically a tagine and she made it of liver now me i hate liver i do not eat liver at all but okay. when she made it i ate it because you know you're gonna be nice because you're with the in-laws first time you're meeting them and stuff i ate it it was amazing so <laughs> basically liver tagine amazing okay wow have you ever had i mean that? really every every north african is half french as well bro it's just a, <laughs> it's a lie, bro. <laughs> you know it's quite interesting because the relationship that you you north africans have uh you know you have a strong relationship with with france and us who come from the subcontinent originally we have a really strong relationship uh with britain obviously yeah so it's quite interesting the dynamics of the of the two areas really mm. except you guys don't hate britain you love it <laughs> no because we because we came over here right <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we kind of love it yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah. So, so Muhammad, like I, I, as I said to you uh, previously, I think the the overall theme of this episode is going to be like development, yeah, developing mm. yourself, developing others, and uh, I think you know you have a very strong background in that. So, in order to kind of give context context to that kind of topic, can you just like give us like a pretty brief overview of your kind of timeline of where you've been, what you've been involved in, and then we could dive into the details of that, inshallah. Okay, so where, where do you want me to start? Like the actual so, things that I did, or from like, nowhere? Like I would say start with uh, Xerox, I suppose. Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, like when I when I first uh, graduated from university, I studied business and things like that. There, um, I wasn't really sure what to do. Like a lot of people, they're kind of like you know unsure. And usually, when you don't know what you do, 
you, you end up teaching or something or you end up studying more. So I remember I was sitting outside uh, Wembley Stadium with my dad and I said to my dad, look, I'm going for this job interview. If I don't get this job, I'm going to move straight into like doing a master's in something. Mm. Uh, and alhamdulillah, I got the job. It was in sales, working for a company called Xerox. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was really good. The reason why it was good, mostly when you go to a sales organization, what they'll do is they'll give you a script and they'll say, okay, you know, use this script and sell. What Xerox did is they actually taught us about the psychology of selling. So this got me really, really interested uh, about mindset, about the psychology and how you can basically take someone from being completely unaware uh, to influence them to kind of buy products and things like that. So I was very, very lucky. I did uh, I did that for a few years. And then after that, I kind of became a project manager. I got qualified as one, did that for a few years. Um, and alongside that, I was doing different voluntary kind of uh, activities and stuff. And, uh, you know, then I became uh, head of operations at, uh, at a charity as well. I've been just helping uh, different organizations, Muslim uh, mm. organizations for, for a while. Mm. So so I know when I know you we were, were involved in um, what's it called Muslim Youth Helpline, right? Was that yeah, while you're yeah. at Xerox, right? Yeah. So what, what happened is that because, you know, you guys will uh, know and, and the people that are kind of listening will know that when you first start, uh, when you leave uni, all you want to do is get a job. And then when you get into a job, you just want to make money and get on with it. And and it's a natural kind of thing. But once you start making a bit of money and alhamdulillah, I was doing well because it was sales. I started feeling like it was too much just about money. Mm. Uh, and for me, that wasn't really fulfilling enough. So what I decided is I want to do something outside of work which will kind of fulfill my purpose a little bit more. Mm. And that's when someone at Xerox, and this is why I'm so glad that I got the job at Xerox, alhamdulillah, that um, someone at Xerox said to me, hey, look, if you're looking to do something, why don't you join this? Because, you know, someone I know is doing it. Mm. So I went down there and, uh, you know, I thought it would be like a typical Pakistani type operation, right? Where you got like one guy sitting on the phone and then he's answering calls or whatever. But when I went down there, it was a very, very professional setup. So it was basically a telephone counseling service for young Muslims. So anyone from, you know, from any age really, from eight, nine, ten even, uh, all the way till their late 20s, people calling up, people emailing, sometimes on chat, uh, just kind of dealing with different issues. I mean, most of my specialities, alhamdulillah, like in terms of dealing with calls, was around uh, sexual abuse, self harm suicide kind of a lot of the issues that a lot of teens are going through really mm. so so tell me about being at xerox i know i mean i've heard xerox is very good when it comes to uh, the training side right so tell us about your development because obviously you're you're like young fresh out of uni at that time so how did that help you develop alongside the whole muslim youth helpline thing yeah, so this is this is a very good point because um, Xerox are actually known throughout the industry for having really amazing training. They take development very, very seriously. Um, so like I said, they hired this special company. It's called Gazing Performance. I don't know if they're still around. But that company specializes in training athletes. So they usually work on the psychology and the mindset of athletes. And if you think about an athlete, an athlete is a prime example of amazing development. Mm. Why? Because you can never imagine an athlete going to the Olympics or going, uh, you know, somewhere to win a gold medal without having a coach, without developing themselves. Um, so what this company did is they came in and they started working on the psychology. And so Xerox, they had this different kind of uh, approaches to, to development. So for example, one thing would be you sitting in front of a computer, you learning all about their history, the kind of facts and figures and their processes. Um, then there's another element where someone like Gazing would come in and they would train you up on the psychology. Mm. When they trained us up on this map, they actually made us memorize, like, I think it was like a 
60 pieces of the map. They made us memorize the whole thing. Uh, we had a test at the end that we had to be able to produce that whole map completely. So we knew the sales cycle and the sales model Wait, what's this map? inside out. So what they did is they gave us a map of how to sell. Oh. Um, so they basically uh, had a pictor- pictorial kind of representation of the whole sales process, oh. and they made us memorize the whole thing. Wow. So not only would you learn it, you would memorize it, you would practice it, and then what happened after that is once you memorized it and you learned it, then you would sit and you would make real-life calls to customers, and you would have a, a coach sitting with you. Mm. So he would sit with you, he would have double headsets on, and he'll be like, okay, now make this call. And then you make the call, and then after the call, he sits you down and he goes right how do you think that call went you should have done this you should have done that and so there was a whole element of coaching which i had never really experienced on that level before because i realized that coaching is actually amazing for development even more than training courses and reading books so that was really powerful so when you were going through that process of like pretty much getting grilled every call was did Mm. did you like hate it at the time or yeah, it was very, very nerve-wracking. It's really, really... Because, you know, when you're at work, especially you've just started, you want to impress people, you want to kind of uh, do well. So it's very, very uncomfortable. Mm. But I think that this is where the skill of the trainer comes in. Because one element of, of really, you know, developing people is making them feel comfortable, making them realize that this is their dojo, their training ground. And so, you know, making mistakes is a part of the process. And and anyone uh, that goes through development, they'll realize that the way to success is through failure and, and, and through going through things where you have tough times and all of this stuff Mm, yeah makes sense so how did that then did that at all apply then when you went over to muslim youth helpline you know in your free time or whatever yeah, and this is why, alhamdulillah, I was very lucky because, again, on Muslim Youth Helpline, I was spending a lot of time on the phones. Um, and, and the phones, I found, were uh, even more pressurized, right, uh, over there. Because, you know, I had certain cases where, you know, for example, people were suicidal and stuff like that. That's very different to a customer saying, oh, I'm not ready to buy right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So it was, it was a lot more pressure, I think, there. And then, of course, you know, uh, as I dealt with more and more calls, because... For me, it was like, you know, when, like, if you're, if you're young and you want to kind of change your life a little bit, I was at that phase where I wanted to start becoming more practicing. I wanted to, like, develop myself much more. And so because of that, what I did is I basically uh, just engrossed myself and immersed myself completely in the helpline. Mm. So to get away from the boys who I love so much, even to this day, all my friends and boys, but they're very different to me. They're kind of into things that I'm not into anymore. You know, for them, uh, for me, it was a perfect time to indulge myself in, in mm. giving with something like this mm. so that I could get away from that environment. Mm. Very good. So like, I know we, we've discussed Muslim Youth Helpline like uh, in private or whatever, but I, wa- mm. I, I don't think you've ever uh, gone into detail of like a certain case or like how specifically were you trained over there to deal with these cases at Muslim Youth Helpline? Like what was the process there? Yeah, so the process was that they, they would train you up on different uh different topics so obviously there's a range of different things that happen commonly so for example substance abuse we had some special people come in it was quite cool they wore all these drugs in and they were showing us how Mm. the drugs work and what they are for and stuff Um, and then you get onto like the other areas so for example they would say right one of the big cases in 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 the actual helpline is sexual abuse so when it comes to sexual abuse there's all these types of sexual abuse this is how it happens this is the kind of uh, issues you're going to face so they basically took each of the topics and then they told us about that 
that. Mm-hmm. And then they also did role plays. Um, and role plays were very, very powerful because, you know, it gives you an opportunity to really try it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really loved about the role plays, and then when I got into training people how to handle these calls, I did the same thing. I would make the role plays extremely difficult, mm-hmm. like really, really, really difficult, like they're never going to be on the call, right? Yeah. And then when they get onto the calls, it's like, oh, this is not as bad as the training. Yeah. So that was yeah. really powerful, you know? Yeah, so is that where you got it from? Like, I remember... Whenever we're hiring people, you always tell them, oh, you're going to have to work, you know, 50 hours a week, this and that. <laughs> Is that where it comes from? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that whole thing that if they, you know, there's that, there's that quote. I think it's from The Art of War. It says, um, you know, the one who sweats more in, in training bleeds mm. less in the battlefield, oh, you yeah. know. And Sick. it's that kind of thing where you make them sweat in that, uh, in that arena. And then when they get to the real thing, they're like, okay, now I can handle this. No problem. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is kind of I put a video out yesterday, and this is kind of the theme of what I was saying. It's also the theme of this book I read recently, uh, the Defining Decade about your twenties. And it's like go through some some tough stuff, like what you're describing. Like you're getting grilled at Xerox, you're going to Muslim Youth Helpline, you're under immense pressure because people are pretty much relying on you to get them out of this very difficult situation. And that pressure in your twenties, like. That whole 10-year period, or even if you want to cut it short, like 20 to 25, if you put yourself through that um, at, the, at that age, I, I think it sets you up very, very nicely for your 30s. Would you agree? Yeah, abso- absolutely yeah. right. I mean, for me, like, uh, I really, I, I feel like I was a nobody at school. I feel like my grades were average. I was very, very average in every single way. That, mm. That's how I saw myself. That's how teachers saw me and everything. But I think that I, I, I was kind of driven by guilt, from from wasting time Mm. Um, and in my early 20s I took that guilt and I just made it into like rocket fuel Mm. and I just I just went in hard and I'm so glad because now when I when I think about I'm in my 30s I'm like there's no way that I could now do the things I did in my 20s you know once you're married you got kids it's very difficult so Mm. like anyone who's listening who's like you know uh, anything in their teens or early 20s I would say like grab on to a few things and just give it your all work your hardest this is the time for you to work hard this is the time for you to kind of make it and the more you do it now uh, the more you're going to see a payoff from it mm, definitely inshallah so so bro i don't i want to move on but i want to drill down into something in the muslim youth helpline like give me like a real kind of case study and, okay and how yeah. you help them yeah sure I'll, I'll give you a real case study right so one one of the things that happens at the helpline is that they will give you fake calls mm. to test uh how you're doing Mm. Right, because they want to they want to make sure, right, that you're not saying dodgy mm. things on the phone so it was like and all very this kind of stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely professional. Mm. I mean, some of the things they asked in my interview were very, very difficult questions. Mm. Like they would give you a list of like like a they would say to you, okay, so you've got you've got someone who uses drugs, you've got someone who's been sexually abused, you've got someone who thinks they're gay, you've got this, you've got this. Out of all of these, who do you feel the most empathy with? Mm, right wow. like really difficult questions and stuff so it was very very professional mm. so anyway i basically that we got told that you always get a fake call meaning someone from the helpline will call up and pretend to be a client mm. okay so anyway so we're just going through i'm on one of my first few shifts mm. and while i'm on the shift i get this call from this young girl who's like i think she must have been like 17 or 16 or something mm. and basically the situation is this: she goes that i had a big argument with my dad just a few minutes ago right and it's about a boy who i love okay. he's like 40 uh, like i don't know he was like 16 as well or 15 or something and i told my dad i love him typical like asian family right okay. and dad goes don't be ridiculous this that and the other you can't be in love and everything mm. so anyway she's like 
you know, got very emotional and she's gone like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to eat lots of sleeping pills or whatever. So she takes all these sleeping pills and dad's like, yeah, good. Take more type of thing. Right. And and then just, just leave her. So anyway, so I'm on this call. I'm having this chat now. Right now, my supervisor, who obviously is like there to guide me and help me. um, They're thinking that this is my practice call. Mm. So everyone around me knows it's a fake call. Mm. I don't know. It's a fake call. Yeah. Right. Um, But it later turned out that it wasn't the fake call they were waiting for. Whoa. So it was actually a real call, Whoa. right? So then I'm on the phone with her, right? Mm. And I think after a while, my supervisor probably realized that it was not the fake call because it went on for so long. Yeah. So I was just talking to her. So then what happened is they were like, look, what we need to do is we need to call an ambulance. Because when it comes to suicide, there's different levels of suicide. Mm. Uh, there's a level where someone just says it in passing, oh, man, I wish I was dead, right? Mm. And then there's another one where it's like, you know, I'm really going to kill myself. And then there's another one where someone says, the way I'm going to kill myself is this and that, right? right? And then obviously the extreme is someone who's in the process of doing it. Yeah. So anyway, with her, she was like, you know, she was she had taken the sleeping pills um so then it was all about just trying to talk to her to try and get her address now this is very difficult because you know one of the biggest things on the helpline is confidentiality yeah right so it was about trying to keep her on the phone Mm. so i basically kept her on the phone for ages talking to her trying to comfort her uh, and then we got her she eventually alhamdulillah she gave her name uh, and address and stuff and so then i gave it to the supervisor they called an ambulance and stuff and they took her away and then alhamdulillah she called back two three days later just saying that she feels that has saved her life alhamdulillah Mm. Wow, crazy. And so, like, although that wasn't fake, like, these are the kind of things that were coming up, you know, constantly. Yeah, this is, this is like, exactly, there's a lot of suicide. I mean, I don't want to be, like, really negative, but there's so much uh, uh, sexual abuse uh, in our communities. There's so much self-harm. And it's very difficult to talk about in our communities as well. So um, this is very, very common. So so tell me, uh, that was, like, you were working at Xerox and you were volunteering at Muslim Youth Helpline, correct? Yeah. 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 So, so what's the next chapter after Xerox in terms of, yeah, your development? So what happened is that um, I was very lucky. Alhamdulillah, another brother that I met at Xerox. And this is why I say Xerox was so good for me. Uh, I met another brother at Xerox uh, and we basically sat down together and we heard about this new organization called Al-Maghrib mm. uh, Institute, which was based in America and Canada. Mm. Uh, and they were thinking of coming over to the UK. Mm. Um, so we, we kind of got involved. We're like, yeah, we really want to help with this. Mm. So we sat down in a room and there was like four or five uh, brothers. And we were like, okay, we're going to do this, inshallah. Who's going to do what? And we kind of started going around the room. Now, because I was a project manager, these guys were like, look, you're a project manager. You're good at managing events and stuff. You be the Amir for London. For, mm. for Al-Maghrib Institute when it arrives. Right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'll do it. And then obviously they told me that you've got to do public speaking. And I was like, look, <laughs> I'll do the role, but I won't do public speaking because I was terrified of, of speaking in public. Really? Um, I can never So yeah, I was terrified. <laughs> absolutely terrified of it. Um, which is ridiculous considering where I am now. <laughs> so um, I was terrified of it. But basically what happened is that uh, I agreed to do it and I became the Amir for London, which was the first city where Al-Maghrib Institute was coming across the pond. Uh, it was launching. So I basically did that for a so couple you- of so you quit your job no no this was all voluntary Uh, and this is an important point I mean I think especially for everyone listening is I feel I was very very lucky because I did something that I call double stacking Mm. right so this is very very important for my development I think that really helped me excel everyone else was that I double stacked so what I mean by double stacked is that most people will do a job for the whole of their lives and then they'll kind of just 
carry on with different jobs. What I did is I made sure that every time I was in a job, my other time was always given to something else. So sometimes I was double stacking, sometimes I was triple stacking. So for example, when I was at Xerox, I would do Xerox, that's the first thing. Then I would be doing Muslim Youth Helpline and then I did Al Maghrib side by side of that. Whoa. Right? And sometimes I was doing quadruple stacking where because I, I taught Quran to children for about 10 years, I was doing the Quran teaching as well. Right, mm. and then it got too much, so I basically dropped the helpline, and then I was doing triple stacking in the sense of the job, al maghrib, and Quran studies wow. and, and teaching, basically. Okay. Right, and so if you do that for a number of years, your experience is not five years; your experience becomes twenty years. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So, do you ever feel? Do you ever feel like that? Sorry, I just jumped in now. All of a sudden, oh, great! Like great you're still here, bro. <laughs> I thought you might have gone. <laughs> um, did you? Do you ever feel like you? Were you uh, capable of sort of um, giving time for yourself to recharge and stuff? Or did you really enjoy what you were doing to the extent that you didn't require any alternative sort of entertainment or downtime? Yeah, this is a really good question. I think, um, you know, people always talk about being in the zone and being in flow and stuff. I feel like at that time I was just like completely in flow. And like I said to you, because I was fueled by so much guilt about wasting previous time, I was just like so, so like into doing this stuff. And I, I, it was like a drug for me. I was just getting high off doing all these different things and I was just like fully immersed. And for me, like I didn't want to rest. It's like, I'll, I'll give you guys an example. Yeah, like one of the things I did, I really, uh, lucky, alhamdulillah, I got to help out uh, the GPU, which is a global peace and unity event. It was a massive conference that Islam Channel used to do back in the days. Uh, I was responsible for all the uh, workshops that they did, the Islamic workshops and the prayer room and everything. Now, normally, if you told me to walk from my house to the shops, I'm like, that's a long walk. I do not want to walk, right? And they're very close, by the way, right? So I don't like walking. I'm not really that much of a physical guy But when I was at the GPU I could walk miles And I would be the last man standing without a doubt And that's not because I'm physically strong But just mentally I was so much in flow That there was no one that was going to work harder than me In those situations mm, Crazy, crazy That was an Excel centre, right? Yeah, that was massive, yeah, really good yeah, Big one So, so now, um, yeah, tell me about setting up Al-Maghrib then But, but one, one thing I want to uh, make the connection of is how did that happen that they were in the US and Canada and you're in the UK? Like, were they seeking people? Did you guys reach out to them? How did that work? Yeah, so this is quite interesting. What, what happened is that, um, you know, my friend, very good friend of mine, Asad, he's like one of the kings of Al Maghrib, mashallah. Um, he went over to Canada to do one of uh, Sheikh Muhammad Sharif's courses. Mm. I think it was a Discover You course. So he went there physically to do it. And while he was out there, he got talking to those guys and they were like, yeah, we should do Al Maghrib in, in the UK. Mm. And then he came back to us and he goes, look, guys, you know, us three, four friends, he's like, we need to do something if we want to make this happen. Mm. And so that basically led to us starting it off. Wow understood okay so so continue how how was it because like what was the give us context of what was like dawah what was like um institutes and stuff like this like at the time like what year was it about yeah this was 2008 okay 2007 yeah so it's a very good question you ask about context because i think it's very very easy to forget these things right so at the time you know YouTube was just kind of uh, starting. Facebook was just starting. So social media-wise, there wasn't that much. We kind of lived in a very, very uh, normal world. But also, like I think if you look around London or, or the UK now, the amount of Islamic institutes and opportunities there are, there's, it's, it's like massively huge. But at that time, it was really special to have uh, you know, seminars and weekend seminars and courses, and no one was doing it on this level. I mean, one of the big things about Al-Maghrib is that they've been very, very uh, pioneering in the way that they market 
market their courses. They used to produce adverts and do all these amazing things that uh, no one else did. So it was really, really good. Alhamdulillah, like, you know, you know, I've got to say, every time I've been in a position to launch anything, I've always had amazing people around me. Uh, and anyone will tell you who's in leadership that it's, it's their people that make them. So I was very, very lucky. Um, I got good people around me. Now, one of the things I'll say is that, alhamdulillah, I'm very lucky. I've, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, that was my bad. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Oh, I was saying that what happened at the start of Al Makhrib, when you first joined, um, we had no volunteers, right? Mm. So I was like, we got no volunteers, we got loads of work, what do you do? So because I've got so much family in the UK, I was like, right, all these kids I'm teaching Quran to and stuff, you're coming. So I phoned their mums up, I'm like, listen, I need these kids to help <laughs> me out for Al Makhrib, right? Are they on it? And mum's always like, look, this guy, whatever he does, it's all Islamic, let him do it. So the mum's like, yeah, he's going to do it, right? And then I grabbed them and I basically brought them to a maghrib. And I was like, right, you're in charge of registrations, you're in charge of this. You're in, they were like, what, what is this stuff, right? Because obviously they were teenagers, they were young guys. But I basically forced them all into it and I kind of created uh, a forced team that I could uh, rely upon to just do that stuff that was needed at the start. And then once the first seminar was done, then people started naturally coming in to volunteer. Bro, I would call that, I would call that a slave army. Yeah, a slave <laughs> army. It worked well. What a slave, bro. <laughs> you came from the Muslim Youth Network and you went straight into that. SubhanAllah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so, uh, so, when did you, because now I'm, I, I always thought you actually got a job with Al Maghrib. Did that? No, never. Ne- that never came. It was always voluntary, yeah? Yeah, it was, all, it was always voluntary. Oh, okay. Voluntary for me, Understood. like, you know, this is another big thing. I mean, I think that, mm. you know, I, I've found that volunteering and giving for the sake of Allah in terms of your time, mm. I, I believe it's one of the most amazing things that you can do, especially if you're young. Because the return on investment on giving to Allah is amazing. Mm. Like, if you think about my volunteering that I've, I've done over the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, through my volunteering, I've met some of the best friends I've ever made in my life. Uh, I've actually got married because of it. You know, I've, I've got job opportunities and my dream job and things like that. Mm. Just all to come from giving time mm. to Allah. Mm. Mm. May Allah accept, bro. I mean, so, so how long were, were you with Al-Maghrib? And, like, like, actually, let's go back a bit to that whole thing of how was it getting, like, you, was it like you had to drag people to these seminars because it was a brand new idea? Like, how was that kind of? Struggle. Yeah, it was completely new. It was like, I mean, we were lucky because Al Gothur had come into the UK already. Mm. So uh, Al Gothur is something that was kind of based on Al Maghrib anyway, but they had already kind of penetrated the UK market. So that made it slightly better for us, alhamdulillah. Mm. But at the same time, like we were charging £97 mm. for a double weekend seminar, mm. and our, our market was students. Right. So we would go to, like, I remember being at all the different uh, unis and stuff like that, and we'd go there and we're like, yeah, come and study Tafsir of Surah Baqarah over two weekends. And they're like, okay, great like you know how much is it and we were like 97 pounds and they were like what 97 pounds are you mad like do you know what i could do with 97 because obviously 10 years ago 97 pounds a bit more as well right so it was a big big challenge trying to um get people to take that thing and to really experience it so marketing was a real challenge and and kind of working with them but again you know this is the benefit of working with what i would classify as like a franchise that we were very lucky that you know al-maghrib had already been in like i think at 10 cities at the 
time. They're in like 40, 50 cities now. But at that time, they were in, I think, 10 cities in North America. So we had like the backing of their frameworks and their structures, which really helped our development. And it kind of progressed us forward much quicker mm. because we could rely on head office and, and things like mm. that. But on the ground, we had the UK challenges. So, for example, UK is a little bit more conservative than the Americans, mm. right? So even the things we were doing, because the classes are very, very different to normal Islamic classes. Like, you know, they do lots of fun activities and weird things and jump around. And, and so you know, people are not used to that in the UK as well. That's very American, um, but, man. High five, yeah, man. That was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you were mostly going to like eye socks, flyering, stuff like that? Okay, tweet. Can you hear I mean properly? Because it just uh, kind of went out for me a little bit. Yeah, I think his, um, his microphone's gone. <laughs> Probably How's it going? His, uh, his internet. I'm, oh, I'm no. here. Well, I guess it's just me and you now. <laughs> That's the way it should have been from the start, bro. <laughs> so, how do you deal with that sort of, um, I don't know, like difference between the US and here then? I think. Um, one of the things is knowing your audience, like really getting to know what they're like. And then I think what we did well is that uh, myself as the Amir and the Amira, we fought the UK corner a lot. So we were trying to explain to head office that this is the way the UK is. This is the kind of best approach. And because they had that consultative type of mindset, I think it worked well where we kind of came up with something which was Al-Maghrib, but it was like a UK version of it. Yeah. Are you still part of that now? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm un- unofficially a part of it. It's like one of those things that I think if you were to cut my heart open, uh, Al-Maghrib would have one part of it. So I still go to, I still know all the brothers. We actually celebrated our 10-year anniversary um, just a few months ago because it's been 10 years since Al-Maghrib was launched in the UK. So I went to the dinner and everything, and it was really cool. And, oh, and now, and um, Amin was saying to me that you sort of back and forth from the UAE. Is that the case? Yeah, I, I go I go to the UAE a lot, mostly to see Amin. I think. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Oh. Salam I'm back, right? Like some. Yeah, I held the fort while you were away. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could actually hear you. Oh okay. Uh, okay, my sound's a bit weird, but um. <laughs> I think you're in two calls at once. Yeah, that's true. Okay, now it's sorted. <laughs> okay, so. So yeah, so Mohammed, what's because I know there was a transition you made from from Al Maghrib, then you moved on to a, a another job. It was actually a job, right? So yeah, take us through yeah. that. Then how did that happen? And uh, yeah, how was that? Yeah, so again, like I said, it all all leads back to Xerox again. So I was working with this guy at, at Xerox. Um, and uh, a few years into Xerox and Al Maghrib, once I did Al Maghrib, people started to realize that you know I'm, I'm capable of kind of managing an organization, leading people, voluntary, all this stuff. Um, and so there was a, a guy called Abdurrahim Green, um, who you know most people know from Peace TV and stuff. Um, he basically was starting a brand new charity called iEra, uh, mm-hmm. and he called me in. He shared the vision with me. Uh, and he basically said, yeah, I want you. I want you to be the guy that basically, you know, heads up the whole operations and manages everything in terms of launching this mm. this charity. Uh, and alhamdulillah, it was still a tough decision for me to move from the corporate world to, to the charity. But alhamdulillah, it was like one of the best mm. decisions I ever made. And for me, it was like my dream job. Mm. Well, you know, one observation I've made about uh, kind of uh, organizations, whether they're charities or, you know, anyone doing a- any kind of activity in, in the Muslim space, if you like, there is a 
I, 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 you know, you, you, you get the typical non-professionalism of some of the organizations, right? But then those who have people who are in the corporate world, I find there's just a huge difference there and it just helps so much. Like, would you, like, do you find that the, the same kind of pattern? Yeah, and I think this is one of the big reasons why Muslim organizations are so different from where they were 20 years ago. Like, there's massive issues in Muslim organizations even till today. Uh, and a lot of that is from the lingering of old school people. Um, on one hand, I've got to say I really, really respect uh, the old school people because I feel that they did things that we would never do so every single person listening today like you know your typical Juma is you go and you pray Juma and you have a lovely munch after Juma and then you chill out mm. right these three four things are possible because someone from the old school took complete leadership they established masajid in this country they established halal meat in this country you know they made it a life for us that's possible mm -hmm. so there's a massive amount of respect that i give to the old school for the leadership that they showed but i think what happened is over the last 15 20 years um <clears throat> as people went into the corporate world like second generation people they went there they learned stuff and they were like wow like you know this is how companies are doing it and so then when they were part of uh, muslim organizations they brought that into it as well now of course a lot of the old school people resist that because they're like what do you mean we need to make a poster for this and that right but over time now these people have brought the skills that they have from their corporate experience to the real world uh, for the muslim organizations and this is something i was very lucky at like i was telling you about the whole xerox uh, sales training process i actually said to myself when i was learning that sales process i don't know how i don't know when i don't know if i'll get a chance but i want to use this sales knowledge to benefit the ummah and the dawah in some mm. way and so when i moved to uh, iera and um, i was tasked by abdul rahim to create a brand new dawah course along with my friend steve um, I actually used the sales stuff from Xerox. I got my books out, like this is like 10 years later or 15 years later or whatever, got my books out and I started going through the sales thing and then I implemented that within the Dower course that we created. Mm. And when you say implementing sales, you mean clear communication, uh, an element of kind of persuasion, like like that kind of stuff or yeah the psychology of how do you move people from one stage to another because ultimately the, you know sales and uh, islam and everything it's all about movement it's all about you're, you're at position a you want to get to position b and so the corporate world and the psychology and the non-muslims are very very good at categorizing all of this mm. so i took elements of that and i said right from a dawah perspective like for example you know when we're, in, when we're in xerox and stuff we would always like you know one of the big rules they say for sales is always agree with your with your prospect yeah, yeah. right so it's like in dawah i, I kind of taught them the same thing that look if someone's coming to you and saying look islam's a terrible religion because you guys cut off people's hands um you know the thing that we used to do in the helpline and sales and everything is that you you show empathy right mm. so you're like you know what that's a really really good good question i know what you're saying that you feel like cutting off someone's hand is really barbaric and mm. i get that you know and and for you to like i i know that it sounds barbaric to you and you're saying that you want to understand how can i make sense of this well you know to do that you really have to understand islam as a whole entity rather than just chopping a hand off yeah. and so then when you start going down that route they're very very different in their mindset yeah then you point it to tawhid and stuff yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh i've got a, a bit of a i don't know a weird question how do, do you think there were any negatives then of taking stuff from the corporate? Maybe people might see it as like ruthless business kind of thing and, and then bringing that into like dawah organizations. Was there any negative or did you see it or? 
Yeah, so I, I think people, like sometimes I say to uh, Muslim leaders, you need to run your organization like a business. Mm. Uh, and they can get like a little bit like uneasy because they're like, what do you mean? We're doing this for the sake of Allah and we're doing the business and this and that. Yeah. And I'm like, look, what you need to realize is that the way businesses do things is maximized for efficiency. Yeah. Why? Because they want to make as much money as possible. Mm. So if you can get to that level of efficiency that a business is at, mm. then you will find that your organization provides more value and has a bigger impact than mm. all the other organizations out there. Yeah. So it's definitely something you guys should be mm. aiming for. Yeah, maximizing rewards and, and positive outcome, isn't it? Instead of money. Yeah. Yeah. And also, exactly. and I think, yeah. yeah go ahead. Yeah, the, there's an element, obviously, of financial sustainability as well. Yeah, I mean, financial stability is a big thing because, you know, the economic engine is what allows you to grow. And this is why I think Al-Maghrib was very good because they used to charge like £97. And what that had is enough uh, for the cost of everything, but it had enough money in there to then grow to another city and then grow to another city. So that within their economic engine, they built growth in there mm. so that they would just develop and develop and develop. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So... Let, let, let's get a bit of a timeline yeah because i think a lot of people listening they might they might still be single for example they're hearing about your kind of the way you de- you were able to develop through involving yourselves triple st- stacking quadruple stacking when you like started at iera for example um were you married at that time yeah i, I was married alhamdulillah. okay because I, i'm actually i'm speaking for Achi tweet here because i know he's gonna say like how can you triple stack when you're married and you've got kids and this and that like was that a struggle you faced? How did that work? Yeah, I think I think I think once you get married, um, it becomes very difficult. And I, I've got to say that even when I wasn't married, I feel like my parents, Alhamdulillah, like they carried me in the sense that they allowed me to do all of this work. Like mm-hmm. if my parents were like very uh, kind of saying to me, look, you need to do this, you need to do My parents realized the kind of work I was doing and they were like, how can we make this guy's life easier so he can do more of it? Mm. So my family, alhamdulillah, is so great in terms of like facilitating it for me, right? Mm. Um, and then what happened is that when you get married, it's the same type of thing that uh, unfortunately something's going to give. Like mm. you imagine this, right? So you're married um, and you know you, you come home from work, you've been at work all day, you come home five o'clock and so you see your wife, your mom, whoever, and then it's like, right, 10 minutes later, I'm in the back teaching kids for an hour. Yeah. Right? And then when you, when you come out of there, then you know, maybe you got a conference call or something. Yeah. So it's like crazy. You know, it's like yeah. really, really uh, an insane mm. life that you kind of lead. And I mm. think that it's only possible with the support of your wife and, and your family and all these kind of mm. uh, people that make it happen. Mm. Now, of course, there's times when there's going to be drama, there's going to be issues and this and that. But I think that's where determination comes in. That's where the mindset comes in that, look, I'm going to do this no matter what. You know, and, and that's what it was for me that I was like, look, I want to teach these kids Quran. I don't know Quran that well, but I know it well enough to teach these guys. I just want to give to them. I want these kids that are going to be like great children out there. I want to inspire them, this and that. And it's so amazing now because like when I went to London last time, I saw like a group of the kids, like five, six of them that I teach. They were all in a chicken shop, right? After Juma. Mm. And I met them and like, you know, they're so, so like intelligent. They, they're growing up. You know, some of them want to be like uh, doctors now. One of them is going to be a lawyer and this and that. And it's just like amazing to see mm. these kids all, all grown, you know? Yeah, D- did that it, like contribute to your development as well? Because long before you had kids, you're like dealing with these kids like as a teacher. 
Yeah, I mean, teaching is an amazing thing. I mean, you guys are so passionate about development, mashallah. So, um, you know, one of the best things you can do is, is teach. Uh, and, and this is what happens. Like, you know, whether it was at the helpline when I learned how to deal with these calls, then I started teaching people how to deal with the calls. Um, you know, it really, really took it to another level. So same same with kids, you know, really dealing with, with the kids. And, and, and I think what teaching did for me, which was really, really powerful, was it helped my communication so much because I was I had to simplify things. In my class, I had uh, the youngest was like a girl who was four years old and the oldest was like someone who was 17, mm. right? So there was a whole range of kind of ages in there and then you have to speak to them on all different levels, especially when you're teaching them all at once. So we would do Islamic studies like once or twice a week and in that lesson, the four-year-old has to understand, but it has to be relevant for the 17-year-old as well. Mm. So, you know, doing that over a decade, I think it really really helped me to kind of hone in my teaching my communication now that like you're telling me like in kind of chronological order and everything i'm seeing like wow like this whole triple triple stacking thing like i think that's golden like that's obviously like you said there's a sacrifice involved but Mm. kind of like what we said on the last episode was that you rest when you when you die like you rest when you go gender yeah and you do need yeah. obviously you definitely need level of balance and there's a time for stuff like when you're single you you might tri- triple stack now when you get married now maybe you're only doing two things when you have kids mm. maybe you're gonna have to go down to one right but yeah but you know like it, the when you have the ambition when like when you got the passion when you when you also when you've got something to offer like I feel like putting yourself in that potentially you know difficult situation of being at Xerox, getting grilled, this and that. It's like okay, now I have an asset to bring to the ummah, you know, like that. Mm. For me, like that's very that's very powerful, and that's why, you know, maybe just as people would say, oh, I'm going to go Medina, I'm going to study three years, and that's going to give me my foundation to then uh, do dawah throughout my life. Equally. If you go to you know some kind of job where they're going to really pressure you to to get very good at whatever it is with communication uh, organization management whatever it is, if you do your kind of stint in the trenches there two three years now you've you've actually developed an asset that you can bring to the ummah it, for the rest of your life isn't it like those mm. those skills stay with you and and you know the thing is I had that intention from from very from the very beginning mm. uh, and it's important to mention here that. I really felt like I was a nobody. Like I had, I would say that I had low confidence. I felt like I had low skills, right? Mm. But even then, I still had an intention. So even like someone's listening, they don't know, they don't have anything, they're not good at anything, they don't know what they're good at, they don't know anything. But if they just have that intention, then Allah will help you and Allah will find a way for mm. you to do it. All you need to do is then after that intention is just put the work in. That's it. Yeah, put the time and effort in for sure. Yeah, so, I think what you mentioned earlier about... Um, the guilt that you were feeling about wasting time mm. something that a lot of us go through um i've been like quite recent up until quite recently very down and not really knowing why and then i realized that it's the guilt that builds up from just wasting time mm. and that was really like the i was honing in on that knowing that you know these hour that i spend to sort of um i don't know offload from work or whatever um actually doesn't do any do do me any favors and i was listening to another podcast where someone mentioned that no one's ever felt down if they're being productive like they challenge you to be productive during that Mm. that sort of instead of so you know instead of um wasting the time but try and do anything productive it doesn't have to be linked to your business or your job or whatever but even something you know within the dean 
you come come out of that thinking that you've achieved something and feeling empowered and that just pushes you forward to the next stage and the next step of doing something productive it's like a, a snowball effect essentially yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for me, like, I completely agree with what you're saying. I, I made a video uh, with uh, Muslim Mastery a while ago called, uh, I think it was like getting back to happiness. And I basically gave a formula of the three G's. I feel like there's three G's that anytime you're feeling unhappy, if you go out and do these three G's, like you will immediately, inshallah, get back to happiness. Um, so the first thing is like giving. Like anytime you're giving to someone, like sincerely for the sake of Allah, that will make you happy. Uh, the second thing is growing. So if you're doing something to grow yourself, grow yourself as a person, grow yourself spiritually, I think that's always going to make you happy. And then the third one is getting closer to Allah. Like if you're focusing on Allah and you're making Allah a priority, you'll feel happy. And I think these three things are really, really good for making you happy. Can I add another G to that? Bismillah, go for it. I'm going to add it. Go <laughs> Gratitude. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Gratitude is an amazing one. I was, wait, I, was, I was waiting for the gratitude, man. It was yeah, obvious. gratitude <laughs> is a massive one, man. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say so, four so G's. Tell from me now, now bro. <laughs> uh, tell me, um, you were you were establishing Ayera. Did you have kids at that time? Um, yeah, I had I had kids while I was at Ayera. I think. Okay, yeah. but what about right at the beginning? Because probably that was the hardest time. Yeah, so I I, I didn't have kids when I first started Ayera. Mm. Okay. Um, but uh, during that course, mm. yeah, they were born. Yeah. Mm. So, so tell me, how was it working with Abdurrahim Green? Who else was involved at that time, like at the beginning, and like, how was that? So there was people like uh, Hamza Zotsis. So he was uh, there right uh, from the beginning, yeah. From the beginning, Hamza Zotsis. Let, let me tell you something about Hamza Zotsis. Right. First of all, everyone at Ayera is amazing. Mashallah. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> these guys were amazing, and and this is why I believe Ayera is amazing. Because you had all these different people with their own expertise and they were so humble and so amazing. Like first time I met Hamza, right? This is we were in some studio, like in the middle of East London and something. It was like nighttime, I think it was like maybe even Ramadan or something. He doesn't know me at all. And this guy's already got like a decent profile, like people know him and stuff. And someone said to him, This is Muhammad Al Shad. He's like, Oh my god, you're Muhammad Al Shad, how are you doing, bro? Like he came, he gave me a massive hug, he was like, Oh, I'm so glad we're gonna be working together. Da, da, da. Like so amazing. Wow. And I felt that this humility was throughout the organization on another level. Like, look at Abdurrahim, bro. People around the world love Abdurrahim like crazy. This guy's been giving dawah like since you guys were probably in your nappies, right? Like <laughs> a long time. Yeah. And everyone loves him, right? But the amount of humility he shows, man, it's insane. And from this, like, I've been around a lot of shiuch, right? All the big names, Yasir Qadi, Muhammad Shri, all these guys because of Al-Maghrib. But what I saw in Abdul Rahim was amazing in terms of his level of humility. There was times that we were in, we were in Kanda when I was helping to launch Ayara in Kanda. Um, and people were asking Abdul Rahim, like, Abdul Rahim, we need you to do a talk here. He's like, listen, my sheikh is Muhammad. He was talking about me. He's like, my sheikh is Muhammad. Ask him. Whatever he wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Right? Wow. And if you think about his level and his personality, people like that at that level, they, they don't have that humility, you know. Mm. So just really, really amazing people, so humble, so down to earth, so passionate about the cause, you know, really, really in love with what they were doing and just, just an amazing time. That's why I said that that was my dream job. It was such an amazing experience, you know, alhamdulillah. Mm. And, uh, we, you know, we mentioned uh, your corporate experience. I think, I don't know if Hamza Torsis mentions this, but he was also in the corporate world before, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. So, so that's another kind of tick. So, yeah, how was how was it, Annie? 
like talk talk us through establishing Aira. What was like the actual? Because now there's so many projects, right? I remember there was the uh, there was like the street dower. There was the mm. uh, new Muslim stuff. There was giving these uh, those postcard things. Those different campaigns. Like so much has been done, right? But right at the beginning, what was yeah, the core I think, I think and foundation like, of the There's activity? lots and lots of different things to kind of. Uh, oh, I mean, I think you went you went kind of quiet there. Did you hear him or? Yeah, I think his mic's gone again. His mic's I'm gone. here, man. Carry on, inshallah. Oh, you're here? Oh, we you're hear still you. here. <laughs> yeah, what did yeah. you What did you miss? No, it just, you started questioning and then you went quiet. Yeah, so I was asking, what was the core activity at IERA um, right from yeah. the beginning? Yeah, so if you imagine when you start an organization, there's lots of different facets to it, right? So you've got the whole operations, you've got the finance, you've got the marketing, you've got all the people. <clears throat> For me, when I first started, they said to me, listen, you're in charge of operations. And then they basically lumped everything under operations. Literally, I, I think I was managing like 10, 12 departments. It was crazy. Like every department fell under me, right? Mm. Um, and it was a great, great time. Why? Because I got to use all the experience I'd learned, all those different places, and then use it from scratch. So I remember, right, in the early days, what would happen is that like me, Abdurrahim, Hamza, Yusuf Chambers, Sakib, a few of us, we would all sit down together, Jamal, all these guys, and we would start brainstorming. We're like, okay, you know what? We need to create something for the new Muslims. What are the issues? And then we were coming up with the issues. Then we were coming up with brand names. And then we were like, okay, Muhammad, go away and get this design now. Then I was going to the designer. We were designing a logo for it. And then we were writing a brief for what it should be. And then we were trying to create a course for it. And it was just a like really, really amazing time because we were moving very, very fast. There was only a few people in the organization. We were, we were basically, in the morning, we were like concepting. In the afternoon, we were briefing the designers. And the next day, we were like testing out what we had produced. So it was a very, very fast time. We were trying to bring so many things together. So that's the kind of stuff that we were doing in the early days. But as time went on, I found that my role kind of changed from just kind of like creating all the brands and the products and all that stuff. When that was done, I, I realized that a lot of my time went on people development because a lot of these guys who were very passionate, a lot of the people that we could afford to bring in, they weren't that experienced. So my role kind of changed and it became like it's all about developing these people and making them great in other areas because they're all great in this and this and this. But what about their timekeeping? What about the way they take minutes for their meetings? What about the way that they deal with their volunteers and so it was kind of like developing them as people really mm. and i know i know you always say aira is the best yeah aira is the best in in pretty much every facet and you always say that's down to and this is the difference that we always come across that's down to the their investment in people so mm. where did that culture of investing in people come from do you think i think i think abdurrahim's like definitely a big part of it I mean, he, he used to tell me how, um, you know, he really believes that the du'at should be paid to do their job because the job they're doing is one of the hardest jobs in the world, mm. right? Um, so there was this element which was like definitely investing in people in terms of their money, in terms of the development, everything like that. But I think what happened, like I said, like the, the brother who did most of the filming and everything, Jamal, mm. he was obsessed and in love with filming, okay. right? With me, I was obsessed and in love with development and people management and event management, right? The brother, Muhammad, who was doing uh, fundraising, he was uh, in love and obsessed with fundraising. The brother who was doing our branding was in love and obsessed with branding, right? Ab Abdurrahim and Hamza, these guys were obsessed and in love with giving dawah and uh, training people and talks. So we had all these people who were completely obsessed and in love with their own disciplines, and they all came together for a higher purpose, which was serving Allah and his deen and spreading the message of Islam with a great vision with a great leader and that had exponential growth like never before crazy man crazy 
So, um, so tell me about because we we kind of haven't connected. Because I know I know you right. I know you very well, and I know you're mm. always like, like you developed me. You develop anyone we hire. You try and develop them. You like get on a sales call and try and develop the person. Yeah, <laughs> like where did that come from? Like where where's where was the gap bridged? Did that come all the way back from Xerox? Like where did that come from? Yeah. So first of all, I think that um, I was very lucky. Alhamdulillah. I, th- I felt like from my mum, I learned like unconditional love. Like my mum's like very, very easygoing, and she's like really, really good, mashallah. And I think I learned unconditional love from her. I think from my dad, I learned unconditional giving, because my dad's always been someone who's just like helping others his whole life, and really like you know he's the guy that people would come to to fill out forms and trying to help him and this and that. So I think that was a natural part of me. I felt that when I became a teenager, I I didn't really do much of that i lost a lot of the kind of giving and everything mm-hmm. and then i felt like you know this is what i'm saying about the regret that once i overcame that mm-hmm. i started giving and and like i said to you before it was like a drug for me where you know whenever i was giving to someone and i was seeing them <clears throat> excuse me when i was seeing them develop and i was seeing them grow for me that was amazing because it made me feel even more uh, worthy because I was like, look, you know, I've been able to add value and help someone else. And I'm like, I'm doing this for the sake of Allah. So I know the return on investment is good whenever I do it. And so then with all these years of volunteering, my natural thing has now to become to just try and help people and add value. And I think that's the way I overcome my fears and my doubts as well. Mm-hmm. Because like when I, I do a lot of public speaking, coaching and training for people, uh, and one of the biggest things I always tell them that is if you focus on yourself, like if I stood there on a stage focusing on my belly and my white hairs and my bald patch, you know, I would not be able to add value to people. Mm-hmm. But if I shift my focus away from myself and I shift my focus onto the person that's there, and for the sake of Allah, I'm, gonna, I'm like, I'm going to help this person. I'm going to add value. I'm going to make them better than when they left, when they met me. You know, they're going to go away being a much better version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Then for me, that's amazing. And that's what makes me stop worrying about my fears, my doubts, and all the kind of things that I have in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's very good. So, actually, that's a very good transition now to like, the kind of communication training that you do and you've done like what <clears throat> i don't know bro like a lot of people seem to have issues with this stuff right like public speaking mm. or or even just confidence like i don't know bro just like give us some give us some pointers or some key you know problems people face and then how what is that solution you offer them whether it's like whether it's developing themselves in general or like specifically in the kind of confidence area yeah, so I think it's a it's a massive issue. Um, I, d- I don't know why, really. I, I think it's an issue that a lot of people face. Like I said, I was terrified of public speaking of any form. Uh, in university, what I did, we had this module where I had to basically, the whole group, we had a group and we all had to present uh, our business ideas and stuff. Uh, and in that group, I said to the guys, guys, I really don't want to do public speaking. I don't want to stand in front of my lecturer. So can I do most of your work? And then, <laughs> like, I don't need to speak, right? Yeah. And they obviously they agreed. They're like, someone's going to do our work? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so I basically, I did I did most of the work. And on the day, I just introduced my name, and, and then that's it. That's the mm. only speaking I had to do. Mm. And so that's how it was for me. I was really, like, low in confidence. I really didn't want to speak and, uh, and things like that. And then when I got to Al-Maghrib, I used to get, like, physically, I used to feel sick, like, physically. Physically in my stomach, I used to feel sick at the thought that I'm going to have to speak to 200 people. 
right wow. it was so scary and it was so horrid for me that i used to complain i just got married at the time and i was complaining to my new wife that i would don't want to speak i don't want to speak i don't want to speak <laughs> and you know when i got there um alhamdulillah like i did it but it was terrible and but at the same time i was so relieved i'm like oh it's done and then it was like oh my god you know what in seven weeks you're going to do another speech and, and then it would start all over again um mm. and after a while i got to this point i said to myself listen you know what this is ridiculous like every time you do it and then you make yourself feel crap about it and i said to myself look you need to realize that public speaking is part of the amir's duties so it's very simple you don't want to do it either you don't do it you just step away from the position or you do it you accept that it's part of it and you stop complaining about it and you get on with it right mm-hmm. and alhamdulillah i made the right decision i'm like i'm going to do this type of thing and so I basically made that transition and then ever since that day it's been so much easier so sometimes like the, the transition is just one decision in their mind a lot of the coaching that I do it's it's about showing belief in that person because sometimes you yourself lack belief in something right and then someone comes along and shows you that you are worthy you are capable they raise your standards and they say to you look you can do this and then you're kind of unsure you're like mm, I don't know if I can and then they're kind of pulling you through it and then when you get through it you're like oh my god I actually did it you know so these kind of things they really really help with having someone around and that's why I believe that coaching and mentoring and all this stuff is really really huge for development mm So so based on that like what advice would you give to let's say a 20 22 year old maybe they they're out of uni like a year ago six months ago I don't know or they're going to go out of uni now like I think you've already given some really good things that we can take from it like the whole triple stacking thing like I think I'm yeah. always pushing that before you told me about the concept I've always been pushing that like just do stuff just be active mm. get in the trenches for like 5 years and you'll get dividends the rest of your life. Like what yeah. other things like that would you say are like so key to like it's not just about developing yourself to like make money but like to be a real asset to the ummah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the things I would say is that like obviously get get clear on on things that you want to do, get clear on all this stuff. But ultimately for me I think you know it's about having consistency, right? Mm-hmm. It's about having consistency. It's it's about like toning down your fears and all the kind of doubts and things that stop you. You know one of the things I would say to people is, you know there's that company L'Oréal. Do you remember what their uh, tagline is? <laughs> Because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. Yeah, very good. So anyone that's like 20 or 21, I I always tell them I say you are worth it. Like right now, if you're 20, the world we live in, you've been through so many experiences that you can add value to other people. and you have value right now as a person mm. right so for me it's like getting in the mindset that i am someone of value i'm going to keep becoming someone of value and i'm going to learn and i'm going to do things which are going to enable me to do everything so for me it's about having that level of vision that belief that look it doesn't matter if i'm at rock bottom right now the way we develop ourselves we can go anywhere and this is why i'm so like oh, this is one of the reasons why muslim mastery is a massive thing for me because i believe that islam itself is such a huge tool for development because ultimately that's what it's supposed to be about right you got someone who's wretched and really the lowest of the low you give them islam they implement it and they become amazing 
right? This is what happened. This is what our tradition is all about. So for me, it's about realizing what you have. Like you as a 20-year-old, your identity, like what is your identity? If you're a Muslim, your identity is that you are made to be amazing. You are made to be someone who uses Islam to develop themselves, to go and give to others and to live a life which is full of amazing things for mm. the sake of Allah. Yeah. That reminds me of the ayah, Kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat nas. You know, you're yeah. the best of, of nations brought out for the people. So yeah. if you're and, the and best, then you better dis- act like it. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes we get disconnected. Like I have, I've never mentioned this publicly, I mean, right? But I remember there was a time when I was like young and I was like, I don't know, maybe I was 16, 17. Maybe I'd seen Boys in the Hood. I don't know what it was, right? But <laughs> in, in my life, if you, if you said to me, how do you want to be like? I, like, I was like, I want to be like Ice Cube. <laughs> I want to have that. I want to have that baseball cap. You know the, the kind of he used to have that NY or Raiders baseball cap. Yeah, he's got a little bit of a goatee. He's got an earring. I'm like, that's what I want to be, <laughs> right? I know it sounds crazy because when you look at me now, right? But that's who I wanted to be. Why? Because I didn't realize like what was my identity. I didn't know who I was supposed to be, uh, right? Yeah. And and this is why I'm saying that it's so powerful that when I found Islam and when I realized what Islam was and I realized that being in the service of Allah and being in the service of the Ummah and this and that, when I realize what that is, I'm like, this is our tradition. This is who we are. And I think living in, in the West and living in the world today, like we forget what a Muslim is really, like above praying and all the religious stuff, like mm. what a Muslim really, really is and what we're capable of. And that's what I'm saying. So anyone who's 20, I'm like, before you do hard work, before you like write down your vision and this, that, realize who you are, realize your tradition, realize that you're Muslim and that you've got like hundreds of years of tradition of being amazing behind you mm. subhanallah that's powerful man that's powerful and we got that exclusive scoop there yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bro just before maybe we wrap up i want to rewind back to even before xerox yeah because i know mm. i know you spent a, a good amount of time in pakistan so tell us mm. about tell us about that because like me and, and Akhi Tweet, we're always, you know, we're often talking about, you know, Tunisia, Algeria, this and that, uh, spending time there, the, the, the de- de- developmental kind of benefits of that, seeing, having more of a like broad worldview. Like what did living in Pakistan do for you now that you look back at it? Yeah. Okay. Great question. I think um, before I went to Pakistan, um, every, I remember being at my, uh, my parents' evening. In, in London, in my school, right? Mm. And I went to school and, you know, all my teachers, they were saying the same kind of thing. They were like, oh, yeah, he, he's got potential. <laughs> like, they weren't saying he's good, right? Yeah. You know, like, people say, that, oh, yeah, he's... Like, when I go to my school, they say, oh, my daughter's really good. She's good at this. She's good at that. She's like, all my teachers weren't saying nothing, none of that. They were just saying he's got potential, which is basically the way you kind of softenly tell you parents that your child is dumb right (laughs) that's how i felt at the time and so they're saying all this stuff and so i was very very average now when i went to pakistan the first thing is when i went from an inner city school in london i was like when i get to pakistan first thing that's going to happen in school is i'm going to have a fight with someone right Mm. like you know it's just people try on you Mm. when i got to school like my dad mom and dad we moved to the city of Rawalpindi, which is like a bigger city from where i am from and we went to this catholic school so mm. there's a lot of Catholic schools in in uh, in Pakistan. I didn't even know there was Christians in Pakistan when I went there, right? Um, and I went to a school which was an English medium school, which means that they teach everything in English there, right? Mm. So I was like, I'm going to breeze through this. Even though I, I kind of felt like I was dumb, I was average, I was like, I'm going to breeze through this. Why? Because I speak English. What do these Pakistanis know about 
English, right? Mm. So anyway, I go in there first day. I got my blazer on and stuff. By the way, they said to me, "Look, you know that little caterpillar on your on your on your lip, my moustache, that needs to come off, <laughs> okay. right?" And so they like made us shave. First time I shaved in my life, right? <laughs> made us shave and the stuff. I went in in my blazer. I get into the class first day. Mm. The teacher walks in and everyone stands up, mm. and I'm like looking around me, like, why is everyone standing up? And then the teacher's like, "Please be seated." And then everyone sits down.、Mm. And then every time they're addressing him and speaking to him, they're standing up. And every time he walks out, and it was just like the level of respect they gave to teachers was insane. You know, so just as a, as a school, it was like a very posh school, really good guys that went there and stuff. But it was just a whole different environment from compared to London, where people are abusing their teachers and swearing at them and this and that. So、mm. the value of education went up really, really high in my mind. And then the second thing that happened is that when the first year was over, I had my exams. Basically, I failed everything except my precious English and geography. <laughs> I failed it all,、wow. right? And in countries like that, if you fail, I don't know if it's the same in in North Africa. If you fail in those countries, they keep you in that year for another year, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was crazy. Like my dad had to go in, have a chat with the head teacher, and be like, "Look, he'll he'll pull his socks up. Please give him a chance." And alhamdulillah, they gave me a chance. And so then after that, I was like, "Right, you know what? I need to do something." So being around like greater people than me, like it raised my standards. And then I started to like really, really kind of work hard and stuff like that. While we were in Pakistan, we really hated it, bro. The reason why we hated it because you know you're fourteen, fifteen, you live in this environment in in the UK, and then they take you Pakistan. Like at that time, bro, there was no internet. This is what used to happen. Like since those days, I used to dream about Liverpool winning the Premier League. So I would write a letter. Yes, a real letter. I know some <laughs> of your audience members have never done one, right?、Okay. Like I would write a real letter. And I would say, what is happening in the Premier in Premier League, right?、Yeah. And so then I would send that letter, and then four or five weeks later, my cousin will probably get it because someone's gone from Pakistan and they've sent it to them. Then he would probably decide if he wants to write me a letter back or not. Maybe a month later he would start writing me one. Then a month later I'd receive it. So three months later I get a letter that says, right. We won this many matches. This is the top of the league. That's it. <laughs> crazy man, crazy. That's crazy,、think. but that's how it was. And I was so happy, bro. I would cherish those letters. Like I would, I would read those letters over and over again just to get a feeling of the UK and stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that kind of that whole experience, it was, it was terrible. And again, this is a big, big kind of message that when you go through terrible things, sometimes they're the best thing for you. Because what happened then is when I came back to the UK after that, I came to this country. I had no qualifications at all. Um, and I started my kind of proper college and university, and I basically breezed through it. The whole、mm. thing very easy. I got distinctions at every level. I got first in my degree. Everything was so easy. Alhamdulillah, just because I went through that tough time of those two years.、Mm. Crazy. That's a good, good summary. I would say of of what we've been saying is put yourself in those situations. Even if you're not put in in the situation, if you end up in that situation, you're under pressure. The standards around you are all higher than you. Like take advantage of that, isn't it? Like it's yeah, it's, exactly. It's probably the best thing you can do. And then, but the thing is, is you gotta. I guess you gotta remember that you're in this difficult time now.、Um, you know, you're going through it. Let's say five years, ten years. You're you're in that difficult situation, whether it's at work, whether it's in your studies. But know that it's only a matter of time be- before you become above average in that thing because of that pressure, isn't it? And and then yeah, one, absolutely yeah, and then and then once you realize you've got this asset, now you go and give. So that that's a very good kind of template or framework、uh, to cover.、Um, Mohammed, do, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up? Any anything interesting to share? Any stories? You know, miscellaneous stories. I know you got so many stories.、Uh, anything to add? 
<laughs> Aki tweets oh, laughing. He's like, this guy does not stop telling stories. What's going on? <laughs> Put me on the spot, bro. No, I was just, I, no, in all honesty, it's just been a pleasure to have you on the, on Wine Heist, bro. Uh, absolutely different flavour. Um, I've just been in awe, really. I just like, I just, I'm always, I said to Amin yesterday that I position myself in a bit of a, a listener mode, yeah. especially in the podcast. I like, I, I learn more from it than I do give, possibly. Um, and I like to emulate, I think I naturally emulate the listener and ask the questions that the listener might be thinking about. But yeah, I haven't got much to add. I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, exactly. I think, I think, I think one thing I mean is that um, one really, really big thing I would say is uh, for people to take away about their growth and development uh, for me is humility. I think it's a massive, massive thing, right? Mm. I remember when I first started at Xerox, um, everyone gets an account manager. Mm. So, um, like, we were there and you get partnered up with an account manager. And everyone said to me, um, who's your partner? And I said, his name's Alexis Rufus. They're like, what? You got Alexis Rufus? No way. I'm like, yeah, why? They're like, oh, my God, that guy. That guy is like, oh, my God, I feel sorry for you. Like, he's going to do this. He was, Alexis was, like, ruthless. He was an amazing salesperson, but he was ruthless to anyone, everyone. doesn't matter what level you're at, okay. right? And so these guys were, like, putting the fear of God in me before, like, mm. that this guy's going to be terrible, right? Mm. And I said to myself, I said, you know what? Like, if he's as amazing as they say he is, then I should be learning from him, right? So mm. the first time I ever sat down with him, I said, look, Alexis, you know what? Like, you're the man. And I want to learn from you. And I want to be like you in terms of the way you are with sales and stuff. And you know what? We never, ever had any issue in all the years we worked together. Like, he, I actually feel he treated me different to how he treated everyone else, you know? Mm. And I think that when you get to these situations, you need to realize that development is all about humbling yourself. Like, mm. we think it's about listening to podcasts and doing this. and do, It's not. It's actually about being humble, you know, learning the things you need to learn, putting yourself into positions where, you know, it's low. It's really low. Like a lot of the time when I was cleaning up Al-Maghrib and I was doing this, these are like low things you're doing. Mm. And this is what I'm saying. But if you match that humility with that higher sense of purpose, that connection to the most high, Allah, then it, then it all works out perfectly, you know? Mm. Very Definitely. good, bro. Very good. You know, uh, so basically, I was thinking, you said, you know, I'm here to learn from you. What you did, you diffused any ego that might have been there. And you're yeah. like, look, you're the alpha male here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically, yeah. that's what you said to him. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, so let's wrap it up. Uh, Muhammad, do you have any plugs you want to give, like, whether Muslim Mastery or... Yeah, sure. So um, basically Muslim Mastery, if you go to muslimmastery.com, uh, we do a lot of work about growth and development for Muslims, all about their mindset and things like that. So check us out. You've probably seen our videos before without knowing it. Um, also, if you if you run an organization, if you're a Muslim leader or you serve the Muslim market in any way, the muslimceo.com, which is all about uh, leadership. And we've got some great training on there that will really help you to understand the Muslim market and how to kind of uh, serve them in a better way and stuff. Um, so that's it, really. Okay, Jazakallah Khairan. Akhitui, anything to add? Uh, I've got a plug this week. Okay. Not <laughs> from me, though, but it's um, something I picked up at Jumaan the other day, uh, muslimfosternetwork.org.uk, uh, and it, it was a khutbah essentially regarding the importance of Muslims being involved in the fostering scene, so to speak, mm. and how, like at any one time, I think the statistic was that there is 4,000 ki- Muslim kids in the UK that need foster parents or foster, you know need to be fostered um, 
and there isn't anybody bro like people don't really do it Muslims are not really engaged in it mm. um, uh, there's an urgent need essentially for foster carers I mean in Rotherham in March 2019 there was 53 Muslim children in care and only 3 Muslim families available and it just gives you like an example of like what you know how how desperate this need is and how it's something I never really thought about and I don't know if the general populace of Muslims thinks about it mm. um, but yeah just to spread awareness regarding that really uh, mm. check it out and, 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 mm. and spread the message on that regarding uh if anyone's eligible. Yeah, so uh, can you repeat the URL? Yes, it's uh, muslimfosternetwork.org.uk. You can just uh, Google it as well. Yeah. I'm sure you'll find it. Muslim they've got events Network. that always, they've got events that they do like all over the country where they um, basically educate people on the process mm. and stuff. Mm. And it'd be really good, man, mm. for, to, to get that message across, inshallah. Very good, bro. Very good. You know, and this is something that, you know, unfortunately, the way things have gone, maybe in the last 10 years, with how everybody can be at the front like basically in front of the camera and so a lot of people are chasing the glory associated with doing something great but there are so many essential things that need to be done where you don't get the glory you don't get the recognition except from Allah and that that's an area where you know really man if, if you humble yourself and you're like look this is truly for Allah you would do things that are way more private wouldn't you so mm-hmm. yeah. I mean it is, a, it is a big obviously a big sacrifice but um, and again, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, sisters, they're like, you know, the guys are doing this, the guys are the shuyukh, the guys are the du'at. I mean, this is something, again, it's it's not something that you're going to get, te- tw- you know, 100,000 followers for. But by, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom or something like that, uh, having another child in your house taking care of them, like, only Allah knows the, the reward for that. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, it's crazy. No, May Allah accept the reward of anyone anyone that was involved in that, man, because it, it's, it's a big deal. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Jazakumullah khayran. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashadu an ilaha anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah.